Z. Dave Deloach, legend himself, thank you for joining me on episode two of my new podcast, Between the Levees. Please introduce yourself to whoever might be listening out there. I am Z. Dave Deloach, and I used to own Deloach Marine Services, or at least I, it was an operating company at the time. I sold everything out of it, and uh, I was in business for myself for 43 years before I got the opportunity to sell. Well, we will end up at uh, on September 1st of this year at some point in this conversation, but let's begin where it started. I assume you were born one day long ago. December 7th, 1951. Quite oh. a day. Quite a day yeah. to be born. Uh, what did your day parents... It went down in infamy. <laughs> it sure did. A few years before that. Uh, what did your parents do for a living? My dad worked for the railroad. He was a conductor. And my mom never did do any, she didn't work outside the home. She did a lot of volunteer work, but she didn't have any uh, job. What was life with a railroad conductor father? Well, I had a good dad. He liked to hunt and fish. And so whenever he wasn't working, we went hunting and fishing growing yep. up. And uh, uh, he was gone a lot in my earlier years, but uh, I don't know when I, probably became a teammate teenager he he took on another position another job still a conductor where he came home every day but he did work a lot of saturdays so you know he he was away a lot kind of like being in the tobo business but uh not quite as bad as uh as what we had to endure with uh, being away from home riding towboats but uh he was going a lot what was uh did you have any any I guess, were you drawn to any certain subjects in school growing up? Anything specific that comes to mind? Daydreaming. Good for you. <laughs> I didn't, I did not uh, have anything particular in mind. Uh, nothing really uh, uh, made my fancy. Even when I got, uh, got out of high school, I still had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do in life. Uh, you know, I went to good schools and learned the, the fundamentals of, of a good education and uh, could have done a lot better. I uh, went to schools that they, they challenged, but I didn't have to work too hard to meet the challenge to get by with a uh, mediocre scores. Uh, you know, I was a C student. And uh, when I got to college, it... Uh, it really showed up because I really didn't have to do a lot in college the first year, year and a half. And so I didn't do a lot of studying because everything that we did in the first year that I was at uh, in college, I'd already done in high school. So it, uh, again, that was not a real big challenge to me. It wasn't until I, about the, uh, the second half of the second year that I realized that I had to get on the stick and start, uh, reading and studying and doing work. Sure, right. Uh, backing up a little bit, where were you born? Oh, I was born in Baton Rouge. And uh, we lived there, oh, another probably a, a year after I was born. And then uh, my dad took a job out of New Orleans and we moved down there. And we lived right off of uh, Carrollton Avenue when I was first uh, introduced to New Orleans. And then uh, it wasn't too long, but I remembered. I, I wasn't very old, but I do remember living there for a while. And then we moved uh, out towards uh, 
Metairie. And then in 1956, my parents bought a house out towards Kenner in what's now called River Ridge. Okay. That's where I grew up and uh, lived there until I moved away after graduating from high school and went to uh, college up at Northeast Louisiana State College in uh, 1969. The good old days. That that school, uh, about the time I graduated, it became Northeast Louisiana University. And then uh, now it's uh, Louisiana, uh, uh, Northeast Louisiana University at Monroe or something. I don't know. It's ULM, University of Louisiana at Monroe. Okay. Okay. So it's had uh, several transitions since I was there. What did you study in college? I got to college. I just took a, uh, I started out uh, in, in pre-law. That lasted about two weeks. And then uh, I went into a business curriculum and uh, then finally settled on a marketing and uh, management major. And I graduated in four years. So yeah, I my, learned. My, my degree is in marketing too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you where did you, uh, where did you go to uh, grammar school and high school in New Orleans? I started out at a school in Kenner on uh, uh, Williams Boulevard, which at the time was only from the levee out, uh, not far out past the airline highway. And then it turned into a gravel or shell road. They had shell, not gravel. They didn't have gravel back then. And uh, it was a very small community. Kenner was not very large at all. But the, the school was Our Lady of Perpetual Help. Okay. And I started out at the old school, which was on the river side of the railroad tracks. And we had wooden buildings and cinder block buildings and uh, um, the still had the old church, which is a, was a wooden structure that didn't hold but about 100 people. And uh, uh, I guess it was in the fourth grade or fifth grade, fifth grade that we they built a new school and we moved across the tracks to the new school. So I stayed in the new school one year and then uh, went to a uh, private school from there. So I, I went to the Stewart school from sixth, seventh and eighth grade, and then uh, graduated from there and moved to Archbishop Rummel out in Battery. And you we, finished, you finished there? Across there? the street from where Stewart school was, Rummel High. Across what street? Well, it was on uh, Severn, and uh, we were uh, one block off of Severn, but there was a big open field, so you could see Rummel from the Stewart School. Uh, is that the practice field now? Well, the practice field is out there somewhere between the school and the old Stewart School. I don't have any idea where it's at Stewart School. They, they closed that school up. And actually, the first year that I went there, it was all the way over on the River Road, close to uh, uh, Oshner's. You know where uh, when you pass Oshner's and there is a bend in the road on Jefferson Highway, and it's a hard right. towards New Orleans, hard left-hand turn. Well, if you could turn right on that street, whatever that street was, it was right up uh, on the levee uh, with a River Road, where okay. that street is the River Road. And it was an old two-block, a uh, two-story uh, 
old, I think it was an old cinder block building, but uh, real small school. And they, uh, they moved over there close to Rummel with a brand new facility. So I, I got a lot of the brand new facilities in, uh, in grammar school. Right. I went to Rummel. But when I went to Rummel, I was the only the fourth class uh, in the school. We were the first graduating the class that went a full four years. Because the first uh, class, they only had a, a ninth grade. Then they had a 10th grade, a ninth and a 10th, and then a ninth, 10th, 11th. And when I went there, they had the ninth, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. So, uh, uh, and I graduated from there in 1969. They're a little piece of history, Z. Yeah. So skipping ahead a little bit, uh, you're in college. Tell me about, did you finish college? <clears throat> oh, yeah, I finished in 1973. But uh, when I uh, started the, the first year, I came home that summer and I uh, uh, got some job. I don't remember working in a warehouse or maybe, maybe that was the year I was installing air conditioning systems. I don't remember. It was a hot job. I know that. And, uh, yeah, but I always had a, a hard working summer job, even when I was in high school. I used to paint the... Uh, uh, paint schools during the summertime for the parish. Okay. You do that when you were 16 years old. And then I was a lifeguard. Uh, but when I came home that summer, I don't remember whether it was uh, the insulation warehouse or working in attics, but it was a horrible job. And then the next summer in my sophomore year, I, there was no way to get all of the credits in, in exactly four years. So I stayed the summer and went to summer school to pick up some extra credits mm -hmm. while I was up there after uh, the summer session was over. My, uh, my uncle was the general manager of a, a barge and towing operation out of Monroe and they were moving products up the Washita river and they needed some help on a boat one uh, week or for a few days. And, I went down and caught a boat and uh, rode it from Columbia, Louisiana, up to Monroe. And uh, uh, I don't know, I think I stayed on it three or four days. And I was kind of hooked at that point. So what what year was this? That was in 1971. Uh, okay. Excuse me. That was August of 1971. And was, what was the what was the crew onboarding process in '71 compared to 2022? Oh, it was great. I had uh, a bag with a, a, a spare pair of pants and a shirt in it, and I got on the boat. and They said, "Go up to the wheelhouse and meet the captain." And uh, that was pretty typical of the way they put everybody on a boat. And yeah. went to the wheelhouse and sat down in there, and I said, "Well, this is nice up here. It's air conditioned." And I was watching those two guys building a coupling. We didn't have winches at the time and everything was a 65 foot wire with a, a steamboat ratchet that weighed about 90 pounds. Mm. And uh, so they were out there busting their butt, putting that coupling together. And I'm sitting in the air conditioner talking to the captain. And after about 15 minutes, uh, uh, after talking to the captain and uh, I said something to the effect, it's that, yeah, I think I could do one of do this and run one of these. And he got up out of the way and sat down and he said, well, go ahead and you run it. And, so I, <laughs> and here I am running the boat and those guys yeah. up there and they were hot and sweaty and I was already running the boat. 
And you said that was a four-day hitch? About that. How was it the rest of that, that of that experience? Well, it was great. Uh, you know, I got a, uh, got introduced to towboat life real quick. And uh, now I'll tell you, back then we had a little 800 horsepower boat and it had six bunks in it and we had six people on the boat. We had a cook and all we did, all I had was uh, two barges. And uh, so you had uh, three deckhands, a cook, a wheelman or two wheelmen, captain and a pilot. And uh you know, that cook got up every morning, made breakfast, and then uh, cooked beans and whatever for lunch and ate beans at supper and whatever else he cooked for supper. And every day you had a full three meals on that boat. And uh, I thought that was the greatest thing ever. But uh, we ran, uh, I got on at Columbia, the old Columbia Lock and Dam, which uh, was a... Uh, at the time, the Washita River was only capable of, of handling six and a half foot draft. And so they were small locks. They could only put one barge in at a time and you would lock the barge through by itself and then lock the boat through to push it on out uh, and go tie it off and then come back and get the other barge and do the same thing. So locking two barges through up there was a, uh, it was an all day affair. Bit of a process, yeah. You, uh, you got to go up there and uh, go help the lock man pick his garden and got you some okra and some peas and uh, uh, traded him some coffee. And, uh, you know, it was a, it was a social event. Sure. So uh, we, it was another day to get it from there up to the terminal in Monroe. And we got there the next morning and got the barges docked. Well, by then I was an expert at, uh, tying off everything and making tow and giving orders. So, uh, you know, I kind of like that. So you were hooked by the time we left up there, I, I could pump barges. So, yeah. Uh, so those four days pass, I, you go back to go back to college or what, what else? Well, I was summer? on break at the time. Uh, the summer session was out, but yeah, I, I finished taking my break. Went back to school and then uh, at Thanksgiving, I went and caught a towboat for a week while we were out of school, came back, rode until Christmas break and stayed off, uh, stayed out two weeks and stayed on a boat for two weeks and came back to school, did the same thing at Easter. And then the next summer, I went and caught a towboat and stayed on it pretty much the whole summer. Okay. And uh, in fact, I had a... Uh, a pair of shorts and a pair of tennis shoes and a bunch of wife beater shirts. And that's all I wore the whole summer. And, uh, we were pushing black oil, number six, black oil. And, uh, I, it, it was so hot out there. Your tennis shoes would almost melt on the barges, but, uh, I was so full of black oil when I got off that, that at the end of that summer that, uh, I had this nice golden bronze tan to me. And I took a, a week and went up to Lake Washita in Arkansas and stayed in the water for five or six days, skiing and swimming. And uh, my tan started coming off in big splotches. I was stained and tanned. No kidding. Yeah. So you uh, you end up finishing college. You've gotten a few summers on boats, a few holiday breaks on boats. Uh, where do you go once you have a degree? Well, you got to get out of college first and you got to wait. Let me, let me tell you about that. So, um, 
about the second or third summer. I don't remember. Let's see, sophomore summer, I was in school. I caught a boat the following summer, junior year. I was uh, uh, riding a towboat all summer. And so between uh, somewhere along about after I, I, uh, I guess it was right after I graduated. That's what it was. Uh, so I grad graduated from college and my mom came up, you know, parents came up and they was all excited because I was graduating from college, which she think didn't think I'd ever be able to accomplish. And uh, I handed her my diploma and told her I was going to catch a towboat as a deckhand. So I, uh, I did that. And uh, when I handed her the diploma, she started crying because uh, she thought that they had wasted all their money and time with me going to college. And I, I tried to explain to her, I said, don't worry about it. I have a plan. So I caught the boat and uh, I was on it about uh, two or three weeks when we went to the shipyard in Port Arthur. And uh, when we got ready to leave out of the shipyard, the pilot didn't show up. And so the captain called the office and they didn't have anybody to replace him. So he says, well, make, make Dave the pilot. He can run the boat better than that guy you had on here. So here I go uh as the uh, pilot you didn't have to have a license at the time they were still grandfathering people in and wasn't uh, requiring licenses even though they uh legally you should have had one but uh in 1973 nobody cared and so uh we took off went to new orleans turned out in the river and i was like oh my god i have no idea where i am and i made it all the way up to uh the river we went to Pine Bluff, Arkansas, and that was 1973, and it was one of those years exactly like this one. There was no water in the river. We got up to Greenville and uh, uh, had to stop and wait for them to dredge holes in the sandbars so we could get through and had to, uh, and we were just a little 1350 boat pushing 650 foot of tow. And uh, we couldn't get through some of those chutes and those holes that they were digging in there. We'd have to get a big boat to help us push up through there sometimes. And uh, we finally made it to Pine Bluff, Arkansas. The water was sh so shallow at the dock, we couldn't get the barges to the dock. So we had to take the tow up to uh, Little Rock and heat the barges and pump one barge into another one and so we could lighter one of them and bring it back down to pine bluff and get it next to the dock and pump it and after we got that one pumped we went back to uh, uh little rock and heated them again and pumped more cargo into that one so it was about two weeks of lightering and shuttling between pine bluff and little rock and running aground on a every six hour basis and uh, after we got to Little Rock and made it back to Pine Bluff on the first trip, the captain says, okay, I'll see you in two weeks. And he grabbed his bags and he got off and went home. And so I was on the boat by myself while we were shuttling up and down uh, from Pine Bluff to Little Rock and pumping barges. And uh, it was interesting, you get right below the locks up there and you'd run aground and the lock would have to open the gates and flood water down so you could get up to the to the lock four bay because it was so shallow below the locks yeah but we finally get did that and got the barges pumped and uh 
we took off with just me on the boat and the, and the three deck ends and went south from uh, headed to Monroe. And uh, finally, I got down to uh, Old River Lock and they found the, the, the captain came back and I got to get off. So. So these are tank barges you were discharging, you said, in yeah. Pine Bluff? Yeah. Well, what was the, uh, was just any crew person a capable tankerman at the time? Well, we had a tankerman on the boat, but uh, at Monroe, it didn't, uh, it didn't matter to them if you had a tankerman's license or not, if you could load and pump. Same thing at Pine Bluff. The, the company that owned the barges and the boats had those terminals. It was more terminal and barge company. And so... Uh, they didn't care whether you had a tankerman license or not. They just wanted to get the stuff pumped and loaded. So I got to, you know, another baptism by fire, go load the barge. Well, how do you do it? We'll go out there and turn the valves in and let product into it and watch it. And it gets too, when it gets full, shut it off. So where did, uh, where did your career go from that point? Well, I went and, uh, I got my tankerman's license and then, uh, Shortly after that, I, uh, I went and got my, uh, operator's license. It was a, uh, uh, operator of uninspected towing vessels. And okay. it was a 10 question test that you went down to new Orleans and in this old wooden building in the old cotton exchange and, uh, sat around with all the other drunks and, uh, <laughs> the stairway while, while you were waiting to go in there and get your license. But it was a uh, very, uh, very loose back in those days. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I could tell you some things that, uh, I think the statute of limitations is over with, but, uh, sure. Hope so go into those things, but you know, no, uh, <laughs> we sank a barge one time and <clears throat> we didn't call anybody. And, uh, after, uh, and it wasn't completely underwater. It like one corner of it was out of the water. And uh, somehow after it had been sunk for about a week and we were working on trying to raise the thing, this wildlife and fisheries agent showed up and he was hot, hot. He was hotter than hell and wanted to know why nobody called him, called anybody, called the Coast Guard and uh, to tell him, and my uncle, who was the, the guy in charge, told him, says, well, we didn't figure it was sunk. He says, oh, this guy came unglued. He says, well, the barge is underwater. He says, well, not completely. It's just heavy loaded. So, but there was nothing the guy could do. There was no penalties. There was nothing, no requirements. So uh, you got away with things like that. Right. Spill oil in the water and nobody cared. That's the, the common way of uh, emptying the cargo hose back then was to open it up and let her rip and go over the side. Nobody, that was the common way of doing it on all liquid toes. Yeah. They didn't, uh, we used to not even have drip pans on, on barges. So, you know, that was 1972, 73. That, that changed after uh, the Water Pollution Control Act of 1972 got implemented. Your career your career advances over time, and, and you obviously you end up back down here to start your own business. Uh, anything interesting in between when you first got on the river to then? 
Well, after uh, riding boats for a while, I uh, went ashore and started chasing those same boats for Washita Valley Towing Company and Moore Terminal and Barge. And um, it was pretty much a, a one-man operation, and that was me. I was the one man. Uh, so I did that for, I don't know, a couple of years and or a year, maybe a year on shore. And in 1975, about midsummer, I uh, I got a job with Shotan Transportation, which at the time was the largest petroleum and chemical carrier on the waterways. Big company had 150 barges and uh, 15 boats. Is that where you met Frankie? That's where I met Frankie. Okay. Dave, I'm, I sat across the, uh, Frankie's desk was on one side of the aisle and mine was on the other. We looked at each other just like you and I are looking at each other right now for uh, a few months. That was when we were on uh, Barone Street. And I guess it was about six months later, they moved to uh, One Shell Square and Frankie got his own office. And I stayed there until... Uh, I think it was 1977, 78, somewhere in that time frame. And I went out and caught a towboat. I was told that I was too aggressive for the corporate structure. So I turned in my resignation. <clears throat> so uh, interesting uh, tidbit, the Margaret O, which is in the Ingram fleet now. Okay. Um, I don't remember which boat that is, but... Uh, it was the Bar Margaret O. It was a St. Louis ship built. It, it, uh, I uh, was partially in charge of, uh, of crewing and supplying and outfitting and chasing barges. And uh, so me and uh, the barge guy, whose name was John Kaufman, who ended up working for Ingram, uh, would run up to Decatur, Illinois, and uh, I mean, uh, Decatur, Alabama, and uh, let's see, where was eight, eight, four of those barges were built in Decatur. Four of them were built. <clears throat> I'm trying to remember where the other four were built. But anyway, they had uh, two strings of uh, barges, four in each string, and that 5,600 horsepower Margaret O was built in St. Louis. It came out and it was supposed to go to work for uh, what was at the time the uh, uh, Middle South Utilities, which was uh, the predecessor to energy and uh, moving black oil. And it came out and went tied up in the fleet for 13 months. Huh. So after it had been uh, idled for 13 months, they finally got a, a run for it. And I uh, uh, went and uh, got the boat crewed up and ready to go and got the barges ready to go spent uh, about three weeks getting everything ready and had a, a plan to show them how to get the barges uh, set up to to go into the dock so all they'd have to do is take uh, two sets of four and slide them into the dock and hook the chick sand hose chick sand arm to them and go to loading and I left the boat about uh, three o'clock one Friday afternoon and they were headed down to uh, Marathon Garyville to load. And this was the first loading of black oil to come out of Marathon Garyville. Ingram still owned a piece of the uh, refinery at the time. And uh, <clears throat> when the, the boat got there, they jacked around and didn't do anything. And uh, 
So I called them on the phone to uh, find out what was going on, why they wasn't getting ready, and they said, "Well, we'll get it. We'll get it all arranged when we go to the dock." That's, that wasn't satisfactory to me. So, uh, so I headed up there, got on the boat, and started pushing to get everything in order so that we could shine when we got called into the dock. And about uh, nine o'clock that night, I. Uh, uh, we, we put the first cut into the dock and then went and got the second cut, stuck it into the dock and everything went smooth. And as I was leaving the boat, the personnel man was showing up and he said, he was chewing my ass. He said, uh, said, man, you're about to run everybody on the boat off. So I said, well, too bad. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. And I, uh, went, went home, got up the next morning went into the office. It couldn't have been a Friday when I left out of there because next morning I went into the office and uh, that's when I got called into the VP of ops office and uh, we got to talking and that's when he, he said in his best Cincinnati accent said, well, you know, you're a little aggressive for the corporate structure. <laughs> I said, I said uh, I'm not going to sit around here waiting 20 years for your job. Right. Said, so probably would be a good time for me to resign right now. So I gave him a two weeks notice. So that was uh, my corporate life. That's the sure. only time I was a corporate entity. Gotcha. <laughs> so what then led you to go into business for yourself? Well, I went after I left Shotan, I went out and caught a towboat, which I rode their boats and, uh, then rode other boats. But in 1979, my uncle, who had been up at uh, Washita Valley Towing Company, had left there back in the mid 70s, and he was looking for something to do. And he had three sons, uh, who also had been riding towboats and all had their licenses. So we decided to uh, look for something in the towboat business. And there was an opportunity with a company in Baton Rouge that was broke and. Uh, had investors behind their towboats and uh, the investors were not happy. And so they, uh, they took the contract away from the broke guys and gave it to us. And uh, we just, uh, we managed to return them some money and uh, managed to build a couple of boats of our own. And we were doing quite well when the manager of the uh, investment company looked at the money that we were generating and decided to get greedy. And he said, uh, you know, I have the right to determine who's going to manage these boats and I, I'm going to set up my own management company. And uh, we wouldn't give him the checkbooks. So uh, we split, the, split the, the sheets with him and he took our boats and we had them on good contracts. But that was in uh, October of 1982. And uh, this was way before your time, but it, that was the, the point in time when the whole world shut down. And uh, it was when Ronald Reagan became president in, uh, uh, in inflation at the end of the 70s and the early 80s was, was in hyperinflation. We were paying 24% uh, interest at the time. And uh, when this guy came along and took the boats, all the customers could see what was happening. And they started slimming down. 
their businesses were turning down and in 30 days he was broke. So uh, we kept the two boats that we had that we built and kept them running and paying the notes on them and we were riding them and doing quite well. And we did that until about 1984 and uh, the finance company called us and said, uh, you know, you're the only account that we have that's still paying full notes and uh, they couldn't figure out how we were doing it. So they said, let's go into a venture together and we'll give you all the boats that you can operate and uh, uh, we'll help you. Yeah, well, it's kind of like getting help from the government. <laughs> In the meantime, my uncle passed away. Uh, it left me with a towboat tow company and uh, three partners with uh, no real uh, running of a business experience, but it was dumped in my lap and I learned real quick how to run a business and uh, uh, managed to survive until 1977. We, it was a struggle. Every day was a struggle. We would, we would call- or 87? Huh? 77 or 87? 87. Oh, excuse me. Until 1987. I'll get to that in a minute. But uh, I mean, you'd come in every day and you'd, you'd have to call customers and see if somebody owed you $500 so you could go buy fuel and yeah. uh, somebody else that might owe you 2000 so you could make payroll. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, look, the, the most recent years that we've had were cakewalks compared to the 1980s. Yeah. So you did whatever it took to keep cash flowing through the company. And we did that until we expanded. We had seven boats working and uh, <clears throat> all of them financed by Westinghouse credit. And in 1987, something happened in the fall of that year that uh, is like money disappeared. Nobody paid us. And uh, come January 1st, we didn't have enough money in the bank to make the boat notes and payroll. And I called up Westinghouse Credit and told them, said, look, I'm going to make the payroll. We are not going to make a boat note. And they called me back in about 10 minutes and told me, said, well, we need you to bring all those boats back to Homa and tie them up. And, uh, I said, no, we're not going to do that. I said, no, nah, I've worked my butt off for you for the last four or five years, putting all this together and making it work and scratching and uh, to survive. And now you're just going to come take my boats. And so we went to war with Westinghouse Credit in 1978. So we went through a reorganization in 1978. And we came out of that in 1979 and uh, didn't have any boats. Uh, couldn't own anything, but I had other people who could. So uh, we put all of the equipment in somebody else's name and ran it. And uh, uh, so actually, excuse me, we, we had one boat that we bought out of it and two boats that we bought out of it. And the other five were purchased by American Commercial Barge Line. We operated or managed them for ACBL. Uh, and then, uh, you know, as, as a matter of fact, the two that I was thinking we bought, <clears throat> we didn't buy. They bought them. <clears throat> we leased one back and they sold the other one. 
and then that left us uh, with the five that we uh, were working for them and uh, the one that they uh, they leased back to us with an option to buy it. So we had these boats working out around on it on the intercoastal canal and had one of them uh, working on the river coming from uh, uh, Paducah. But uh, there was a guy <clears throat> that was running things. He was the general manager on the Gulf Coast for American Commercial for ACBL. His name was Sonny Ivy. And uh, he's the one that was very instrumental in putting that thing together so that uh, we could buy those boats out of that uh, reorganization. <clears throat> and it, it was just a happenstance phone call because my business partner, A. David Deloach, was a uh, golfer. <clears throat> and Sonny called wanting to, go, wanting to go play golf. And I asked him, I said, Cap, you need some boats? He says, as a matter of fact, we do. And that's what got the whole thing started. And so we went went in, into the uh, court and uh, with a, a suitor, and uh, they bought the boats out of there. Okay. <clears throat> and what was business but, life at that point? It was, it was not great, but it was better. We just ran out of money. We just couldn't do it anymore and uh, had run out of money. And we were paying uh, an arm and a leg to the finance company. You know, they were in business for themselves. They wouldn't worry about us. But, you know, we had all these great deals with them that uh, they committed to do things. But if you read the back of the, uh, the loan documents, it said that if you ever make a less than full payment, you're in technical default. Well, we were in technical default from day one. Yeah. Because we were just making partial payments to them. And so I learned real quick, read the documents. Yep. And, uh, but hey, I got them because uh, we owed them $3.6 million. And um, I could see this coming about six months ahead. And uh, I called up the manager at Westinghouse and I asked him, I said, who do y'all use to do uh, your surveys on the boats? And he gave me the guy's name and I called him up and I told him to go out and uh, survey the whole fleet of boats and do a con condition and valuation survey on them. And he came back with a, uh, a value of those boats at $1.455 million. So I took his survey and I just opened the bottom drawer and stuck it in there. Right. Here we are about, uh, about nine months later, it, we're in the bankruptcy court and it gets to the point where uh, the value of the boats is what really is going to determine where you're going with this thing. And uh, Westinghouse is arguing, telling the judge that the boats were worth $3.6 million. And uh, we had, uh, hell, I had paid them $3.8 million for uh, six years and still owed them $3.6 million and started out owing them three point two. million. Uh, yeah, it was a finance scam. So uh, uh, they make their argument and uh, the judge, we had this judge, the name was, he had this Wilford Brumley mustache <laughs> with, uh, came down here and he'd, he'd lean back and, his, and he wore cowboy boots and blue jeans under his robe. Yeah. And he'd lean back, he'd put his feet up on the, on the desk and he would just sit there and he'd twirl that mustache like this while he was listening and had his eyes closed. 
And uh, Westinghouse Credit made their argument, and uh, my lawyer, uh, when they finished making their argument, she looked at me and she says, are you ready? I said, yeah. And she says, your honor, my client has something he would like to say about the value of those votes. And uh, I stood up and I had that uh, survey in my hand and I said, look, uh, judge, I have a survey here that says that these boats are worth $1.45 million. And uh, the Westinghouse lawyer, of course, jumped up and says, that's not acceptable. We don't buy it. We don't accept it. That's we object whatever else law, law terms they, they use. Right. I let him go on for a minute and uh, and the judge looked at me and said, well, Mr. Deloach, uh, so what do you, how are you going to support your, your uh, value when they, uh, they're over here telling me how much you owe and what the boats are worth? I said, your honor, I use their surveyor. <laughs> and he looked, he stood, he sat up in his chair. He looked at me and said, tell me that again. He says, well, they have a surveyor and his name was, uh, I said, they use him to do all their survey work. Uh -huh. And uh, I said, I called him and got him to do the condition and valuation. And that's the value he put on them. And he looked over there at that lawyer at Westinghouse. He says, what do you say about that, Mr. Westinghouse? <laughs> and they said, we accept that they're worth $1.45 million. So yeah. ACL got to buy them for $1.45 million. And that, that made the deal work. And then, uh, so we worked for them for 20 years until, um, um, it was time to get out of that deal and go into another one. So that, that was seven boats or five. Uh, well, it was five. Yeah. The, the two that they, uh, oh, they sold one, they chartered the other one to us. And so that was the first of eight boats that we built back up with. So we were working uh, five boats and expanded it to eight for ACL of their boats. We took all of their uh, canal operation boats and merged them all into our fleet. And then we started buying uh, used boats and uh, putting them to work. And so we ended up uh, with eight boats of our own plus the ACL boats. And we did that until 2007 when uh, I got the call from, uh, and he was picking my brain about operating boats on the intercoastal canal. And uh, after listening to him for about an hour uh, and, and giving him information, I finally said, look, it sounds to me like you're fixing to start your own operation on the intercoastal canal. So instead of you having to go out there and build your own fleet of boats, why don't you just come over here and buy all of my boats and I'll operate them for you. And he said, well, you're serious? I said, yeah, serious is a heart attack. In about two minutes, he called me back. He said, they told me, they ran me out of the staff meeting when I told them what you said and said, get on the phone and buy those boats. So Ingram bought my eight boats. And uh, right. we did that whole deal with Ingram doing all their surveys and due diligence and uh, in uh, 30 days. They bought the boats and uh, we went to work for them in July 1st of 2007 and still working for them. We were working all the boats for at the time. And uh, we had a plan at the time they had moving everything for them on the canal. So once they bought me, 
they didn't need the boats immediately because they still had a contract with them. So we kept working the boats with them. And they needed the boats. And we got it worked out so that over a year, we would bring the boats in slowly uh, and uh, put them to work in the Ingram uh, uh, business stream and take them out of the so that took about a year and a few months. And, and we, we did well. We worked with Ingram and made some money. We weren't getting filthy rich, but uh, we managed to make some money. But I, you know, I had sold all the boats to Ingram, and I did put some money in, in the bank at that time, and, uh, which is a good thing because we ended up needing it later in the last few years when COVID came along. But you know, 2012, we had a slowdown. And by 2016, it was just getting, it was getting uh, cutthroat out there. And, uh, and it got tough to do business after 2016. And uh, we had a few good years after that. But when COVID came around, but it got to be horrible. And I had built a shipyard uh, to service all these boats and doing work for Ingram uh, for their fleet of boats out of Baton Rouge. Well, uh, it's a good thing I had it because I needed a place to tie up boats when COVID came along. And, uh, I, I applied for my PPP money and got it. And if I hadn't, we wouldn't have been around today because we'd have been broke quickly that the PPP money kept me surviving for the next year and a half. But what was, uh, a Dave's background to then support the business with you? And what, so, was, what how were the roles split up? He kind of, uh, came up the same way I did on the same set of boats at Washita Valley towing and more terminal and, uh, chase boats and pump barges. And, uh, and, uh, the, the mid seventies, about the same time I went to Shotan transportation, he quit riding boats and, oh, he had been riding for a uh, coastal towing also. So, uh, uh, he worked for John Roberts, dad, Doug Roberts. And, uh, but he got off of boats and went to work for uh, American Commercial in the mid seventies. And that's, he was working for Sonny Ivy. And uh, that's where the, the relationship was established with Sonny Ivy. And then uh, when we went into business, of course, we were all back on boats, but uh, you know, it's when you build good relationships with people early in life and you, you can depend on them uh, later. And sure. that's, that's, you know, that's your formative years. And I tell everybody, go build relationships. Don't uh, and uh, learn how to do deals and shake hands on them and make, make sure people can trust you. Because uh, if you can't uh, depend on somebody, then the relationship isn't worth a damn. Right. And so every place that I've worked, that's what we've tried to do is build a good handshake relationship. And uh, where, you know, you, if you witness when we were working with you is that uh, you can call us up and tell us a problem and we'll work it out. We'll get it figured out. Some, and I, if, you know, if I tell you, this is how we're going to have to do it, then you can, you can trust that that's what we're going to have to do. Sure. So you start affecting each other's opinions. Right. And that's what good uh, business relationships. And, uh, but after COVID uh, the business just didn't uh, come back the way that I, I would, I would like to have seen it come back yeah. and it just happened 
somebody came along and uh, wanted to buy my equipment and take my people and start their own business with it. Well, he was already in business, so right. we we sold it. So that's just a different world. It's not the world that I came up in, right? And it wasn't fun anymore, and it was very stressful. And I'm 71. It's time to get rid of stress. Yeah, I agree. Um, so backtracking a little bit, uh, where in the timeline did you meet a nice lady that you decided you could deal with for the, the rest of your life? Oh, yeah. That was in 1977. And uh, she was sitting out at the pool. And uh, we lived in an apartment complex in Metairie. She lived upstairs with her mother. So we developed a good relationship. And after a couple of years, we had a, a captain's meeting at Shotan. It was the last one that I got to go to. And uh, she came with me. And it was over at the Hilton Inn at the airport. And they had a, a, a really nice lounge. And they had an oyster bar. And uh, she got in there with all those uh, boat captains and engineers at the oyster bar and drinking and eating oysters with them. And she was holding her own. So I said, well, she's got potential because she can, she can handle all the boat captains and, and uh, boat engineers. Right. She's tough. So yeah. I could, we came home that night and I asked her to marry me. Yeah. She was drunk when she responded, but. I was like, ask me again in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Ask me again in the morning. That's a hell of a night. So how many years later were you married? A year. Okay. I was, uh, so I was planning, uh, we, we planned it for April 1st so that I could remember what the uh, anniversary date would be. Yes, sir. I wouldn't yes, sir. getting that. And uh, I got a call from a guy named who at the time was the uh, manager of operations for Ohio River Company and Midland Enterprises in Cincinnati, which was a parent company for Showtan Transportation. And I had worked with him in New Orleans at Showtan. And he wanted me to come up and manage their barge uh, maintenance fleet, uh, their, their fleet of barges and manage the maintenance on them. And so I uh, flew to Cincinnati and it was a I left a perfectly good, beautiful bluebird October day in New Orleans where they, you know, it was about 75 degrees and perfect weather and flew into Cincinnati and got off the plane and you couldn't tell the difference in the sky and the ground. It was all gray yeah. and slush. And uh, so immediately I said, I'm going to have to have more money. I ain't coming up here for what they're offered. Right. So I went over there and spent the day with them and we talked and I told them how much I was going to have to have to come up there. And they looked at me like I was crazy and said, well, we can't pay you that much money. Oh, it was a tremendous amount of money, $25,000 a year. And uh, <laughs> they weren't going to have it. So uh, I said, well, see y'all later. I'm going back and get on the airplane and went home. Right. And I stayed out there riding boats and uh, uh, went into business for myself. So at some point then you uh, ended up having children. Where were you in your career when, uh, when your oldest was born? Let's see. Uh, my first son was born in 1983 
My second son was born 1984. Five. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you, Miss Sherry. 1985. <laughs> She's monitoring everything I say. As she should. Act. And then what year was Elissa born? And Elissa was born in 1990. You know, I like any other good parent, struggled to raise them on what we were being able to pay ourselves and uh, riding boats, gone a lot, but uh, managed to do it. But it was, uh, you know, one of, I'll tell you what, one of the most miserable times I ever had was uh, leading up to our reorganization, our bankruptcy in 1987, uh, 88. And uh, just coming up with the decision to do it was probably the hardest thing I ever had to do in my life, but uh, I, I couldn't see any way out of it. We were just dead broke. And uh, it was like a big weight was lifted off my shoulders when we finally went over there and filed for bankruptcy yeah. in 1988. So, <clears throat> but that's one of those business learning experiences. Right, sure. And I, well, you know, I'll bet you if you, you listen to my timeline, and you listen to Frankie Morton's timeline, there are two rails on the same railroad track. I've already noticed uh, yeah. certain uh, certain commonalities there. Yep. Well, what are you doing with yourself these days now? Well, I am gainfully employed by a company called Intratug. And uh, September 1st, Intratug bought all of our equipment, bought all of the equipment at the shipyard, hired all of our people. They're, they're going to make a go of it some kind of way. The guy that owns it is a, uh, I mean, he is a, an accounting type thinking guy and he is looking at the numbers on what he has to do to make it work. And, and you know what? It's not a bad thing in today's world. I'm from the old school that builds relationships and had uh, uh, too much concern for my employees. And it was just tough to make a, make money when you're, doling out all your money, trying to keep your employees happy and keep them uh, with a paycheck coming when you didn't have enough work to support it. So uh, he'll figure it out. But uh, I work for him and my job is uh, the industry liaison and I work ad hoc. So that means that I work, if they need me for something, I'll go do it, but I'm not going to chase boats, hire, chase people and worry about incidents and take phone calls in the middle of the night. So my phone hasn't rang since September 1st. When you're not working these days, now what are you doing? On September 2nd, my wife and I bought a Sprinter van. Okay. And, uh, we went and went to the attorney's office on that Friday morning and bought it and came home put stuff in it and loaded the dog up. And we went down here to the end of highway 966 and turned left on highway 61. And she said, well, where are we going? I said, we're going down here. We turned it left. <laughs> and we went, we ended up in Vicksburg and then uh, drove up busy with Dave Sert, made a nice weekend of it, came back. Uh, and I've been taking care of all of the, the wrapping up kind of stuff. But other than that, we get in the Sprinter van and we go places. And then I've got an excavator in the backyard digging out a pond. And so I get on my bulldozer 
and ride the excavator and dig holes and get in the sprinter van with the dog and with Sharon and we go to places and and we're going to uh we're building us a house in Gulfport on the beach. Okay. So just around the corner from Frankie Morton's house. Frankie and Jenny will be our neighbors. And uh so we'll be living part-time in Gulfport. Well, good for you, man. I hope y'all do enjoy. I hope you find some peace and quiet. And I do appreciate your time. Hey, the, the lady came this morning. I'm buying some more insurance for uh, uh, that takes care of you in case you have some health issue and long-term care, like nursing home. And I bought some more insurance and the lady came and gave me a physical this morning. My blood pressure is 110 over 70. So uh, couldn't ask for anything more. No, no. But the head, the top of my head doesn't feel like it's going to blow off. I'm, I'm uh, really enjoying not working right now. That's a good start, man. <laughs> Thank you for your time. See you later, buddy. Bye-bye.